I think you have to, um, you have to believe in yourself because a lot of other people are not. Um, we talked about, you know, all the reasons we shouldn't do something. And I remember when I started my first company, um, I actually had a mentor, you know, that, that I, I, I kind of posed, you know, Hey, I'm thinking of doing this thing. Here's what I'm thinking of doing. I was given a lecture on, on how bad of an idea it was and how much it was going to fail. And I think I've probably heard, you know, negative talk, um, a lot, you know, over the last 20 years I've been doing this. So I think one of the most important things is like, look, you have to believe in yourself. Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon, the investing show with a buzz. Sit back, relax. Let's take the edge off. Grab a nice glass of bourbon and enjoy. Cheers from your host, James Vermillion. But first, let me kindly remind you, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the investing show with a buzz. I'm James Vermillion, host of Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon, and founder of Vermillion Private Wealth. This is episode six, and aside from a little bourbon snafu, it's going to be a great one. I'm very happy to share a conversation I had with a real unsung hero in the financial technology space, the founder and CEO of Altruist, Jason Wink. Jason is a mathematician turned fintech founder, and he's on a mission to change how financial firms interact with their clients. We talk fintech, entrepreneurship, investing, and just living life. So sit back, grab a bourbon if you so desire, and enjoy. Jason, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for coming on. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So for full disclosure, I am an altruist user, a very, very happy user um, so far. So when I was going out starting my firm, I wanted to build a tech stack. Like That was part of the beauty, right? I could go out and try to find the best of the best and things that kind of make sense with how I wanted to run my business and what my clients expect. And when I was looking for custodians, to say I was massively disappointed would be an understatement at the beginning um, because I was going to a lot of the big names that people have heard of and trying out their platforms and things like that. And it was just not what someone in the year 2021 would expect. And it was very frustrating. I can remember kind of just really looking who else, what else is out there? There's got to be somebody doing this in a much better way because we're used to in our lives today, whether it's calling a car to come pick you up or ordering your groceries or whatever, we're used to these clean, easy interfaces where you can get on. You don't have to uh, you know, have a bunch of knowledge about the particular platform. It looks good. It feels good. And you can just do it easily and quickly. And that was not what was out there. So first off, thank you for, for building Altruist and putting in the time and the effort and really working to solve a problem that exists for advisors and for their clients. Well, you're, you're very welcome. And thank you for the kind words and, and, uh, and the support. Um, I'll, I'll just date myself a little bit here, but I started my first RIA in 2004. I thought the exact same things back then, you know, that, that you were feeling now. And, and so, you know, 15 years, you know, later, um, the industry still hadn't solved it on its own. Like it was, it was a pretty bad experience back then. And there was pretty minimal innovation, you know, to help financial advisors better serve their clients, um, again, over the course of a decade and a half. So it was, it was overdue, you know, for someone to go in and actually make a difference. Before we get started, this is Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. 
I'm sad to say you did not get your special delivery of the, uh, uh of what we're, we're drinking today. So you will get that later. So I will, I will describe it for you. How about that? It sounds very fair. And, uh, and, you know, I think the, um, uh, so you probably did know this, but bourbon is my favorite drink and, uh, specifically, you know, Kentucky bourbon. So, very good. Uh, which is the only real, real bourbons, you know, so, um, in any event, uh, I, I can't wait to, to partake and to join you uh, down the road. I, it's very. Jason's on the West Coast. Um, <laughs> I'm, on, I'm on the Eastern Time Zone, so it's pretty early over there. So, in thinking ahead, I sent some Buffalo Trace bourbon cream, thinking, "Hey, we can pour a little bit in some coffee here, and, and nobody will know the difference." So that was the goal. That's what I've got. And if you have you ever had Buffalo Trace's bourbon cream? I have. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, yeah, and, and um, so yeah, my. Uh, every once in a while. So my wife, um, while pregnant, you know, you, you, as the, as the husband, you have to like try to find some ways to still like have your cake and eat too, but you don't want to kind of like rub it in her face. So, sure. so that was like one of my go-tos. I have a handful of those. Um, but that was one of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah. I mean, it's so good. I mean, it's good by itself. Just sipping. It's good. Throw it in some coffee, which is what I did today. So if anyone uh, sees me later and they're like, Hmm, something <laughs> coffee smells a little off this morning. That's why. Um, you know, you could put it, people make root beer floats and all kinds of creative things with it, but it's just really, really fantastic. Um, it's especially good in the winter. So that hopefully that's cranking down and, and we're, we're moving into spring here, especially places like, uh, here in Kentucky where it's, it could be 30 degrees tomorrow and, and then 70 degrees the next day. So we're, we're inching closer and closer to some good weather, but, um, I'm going to continue to sip this coffee with the Buffalo, uh, trace bourbon cream in it. But uh, really wanted to talk to you. I'm excited you're here and, and talking with me because I want to talk about fintech. I want to talk about altruist, kind of your experiences in, as an entrepreneur and and how the world's changing and, and, and how finance is changing. Because I think we're really at an inflection point here um, where things are changing pretty rapidly. Uh, expectations from customers are changing rapidly. And there's a big question mark with a lot of companies. Are they going to do what it takes to keep up? Or are some of these uh, newer companies that are coming in with a fresh set of eyes and, and uh, meeting those expectations, are they going to kind of take over and set a new expectation? So fintech is, is definitely a buzzword lately, I think, but mobile banking, um, borrowing, you know, everything mobile, everything online, um, digital, very few, you know, barriers to entry for most people, cryptocurrencies, those things aren't going anywhere. I don't think so. How do you view just the broad state of fintech today um, as someone in that space? Sure. Yeah. And no, I, I couldn't agree more in, in the sense that like there's, um, uh, one, it's been a buzzy word. So I used to have to explain to people what fintech was. Uh, yeah. now you just hear about it, you know, and in some of the, um, you know, most significant companies, you know, in the last 10 years are fintech companies that uh, we hear, hear about them all the time with like Robinhood and Stripe and Square and Cash App and SoFi. If you're in the West Coast, they're building this, or they already built it, this huge stadium, um, you know, that, uh, um, uh, the LA football teams play in and any event. Um, so, so it's hard to get around it, whether it's against banking, lending, payments, investing, et cetera. Um, I think a couple of things. I think one is, um, with any innovation, you know, hopefully at the core, it's designed to make people's lives better, um, or allow them to do things more easily, um, or, uh, in a perfect world, combination of those two things along with um, makes uh, access to financial markets, you know, more broadly um, available. So I think like those are some of the things like the, the positives, you know, the the negatives are like, you know, sometimes when um, when when even the, uh, you know, kind of most 
I think well-meaning entrepreneurs and, and leaders within companies uh, start to taste a little too much success. Sometimes it's easy to lose your way. So maybe Robinhood's a great example of that. Um, you know, sort of gamifying poor behavior, um, yeah. look at how their product is designed. Yes, it makes it easy for anybody to open an account and trade, but it also makes it really easy for people to make bad trading choices that very happen bad. to be very <laughs> profitable for them. You know, sure. so it's not just like they're out there going, how can we destroy people's money? That actually wasn't their intention. Their intention was, how could we um, sort of gamify, make it really almost addicting for people to take the following, you know, let's say five, you know, types of behaviors that happen to be very profitable for us. And they sort of forgot about the fact that, you know, the customer should do well, you know, that's really should be the, the North Star. So I think fintech's got an interesting, you know, kind of um, place right now where, where you really need to, um, you know, be uh, as a, as a consumer, that is I'm very much aware that there are, you know, people out there building products that might seem well-intentioned, but they're actually designed to be, you know, really a profit maker for them. That's not the type of innovation that we need. Um, I think the innovation that we need is the stuff, again, that makes um, things better, makes it more accessible, makes things more affordable, uh, makes people's lives easier and better. Um, and I think there's plenty of those solutions out there. And, and obviously, we're trying to build one at Altruist. Those are a lot of good points. I think we, you know, we, we kind of joked, a couple of my friends and I, about how do we gamify good, boring behavior uh, in investing. And uh, I don't know, may maybe those two things are a little bit at odds because it's not always the most exciting or sexy thing to invest. But I think, you know, a lot of that just depends on your mentality and how you approach it. If you if you approach it as excitement is, you know, making some massive returns in a short period of time, then th they probably are at odds. But if your mentality is, hey, over a long period of time, I can build, you know, wealth, life-changing generational wealth, um, by, you know, incorporating good habits and, and being disciplined and staying in the market, um, when maybe things aren't so easy, then that's the game you win. And that's the game, you know, we need to get more people playing. Um, because you, you know, you, you know, the numbers on, on how, how a, a time frame impacts success, you know, the market's almost 50, 50 on any given day. Mm -hmm. And the longer you, you go out, you go out to a week, out to a month, year, you know, decades, um, this, the level of success of you having positive returns just goes up and up and up and up when you stretch that timeline out. So that's kind of, you know, where I think things come, uh, at, at odds. And I think gamifying is, is an interesting concept. I think the, the goal kind of maybe was, or the, the viewpoint was we're doing a favor by getting more people interested in investing. And I agree with that. Um, but you're right. You, you can't, uh, reward poor behavior. And I think when people make those mistakes and they fall into those traps, they then exit the market and they maybe don't come back for a long time and, and they miss out on a lot of the good parts of, of, of what investing can do for somebody. So it's a tough situation, but there are a lot of smart people working on it and, and people like you um, and what you're doing with altruists that are, that are going to solve those problems. Yeah. Thanks. Man. I appreciate that. And I think the, uh, it's interesting to talk about like the, the, how could you reward boring, you know, but effective behavior. It is interesting anomaly, right? That, um, you know, some of these apps, if you, you know, buy like a cryptocurrency, all of a sudden your phone screen like turns into like thunder lightning bolts, <laughs> right? And it's like, yeah. you know, or like the, the, you know, you buy a, yeah, whatever naked put and all of a sudden there's confetti or whatever. <laughs> the truth is like, yeah, people should almost get like, um, some type of really cool reward every month they do nothing, you know, other than maybe, you know, uh, save into their yeah, environment account or something like that. You know, like these are the types of behaviors that actually do, um, help people. Um, but they are pretty boring. It's hard to like, you know, have a confetti party, um, for just, you know, taking a micro action that will actually pay off in a really major way, um, in time. But, uh, yeah, we're obviously, I'm always keen to think about like, how can we 
reverse course, you know, and change yeah. the way that some of these other fintechs are working and build things that again are actually rewarding the paper that makes sense. Let's talk about Altruist a little bit because, you know, when I shifted and started my own firm, it was kind of a interesting thing. Kind of people don't know what a custodian is necessarily. They know the big names. They don't know what, what a custodian is. And when, when I'm talking to clients or prospects and I'm talking about, you know, how things are going to look and how, how their account will be accessed and things like that. And I mentioned Altruist for one, it's a, a relatively young platform. So not a lot of people have heard of it just yet, but I think that's probably going to change. And two, a lot of people just haven't heard. They're not familiar with the word custodian. So would you take a minute, just explain like what a custodian is at its core and what makes Altruist um, a little bit different from the kind of traditional and conventional uh, custodians that are out there? Sure. Yeah. So quick one, on one-on-one on, on uh, custody, but um, so it's important when you work with an independent financial advisor that um, that you keep your assets separate. Right? You wouldn't want to just write a check directly to you know Vermilion Private Wealth um, and commingle your assets with that advisor. No, that please don't. Afford, yeah, that wouldn't afford you protection of your money. You want to have your assets sort of again with a qualified custodian directly in your name, and your advisors is simply um, is given permission to make investment changes on your behalf. There might be other authorizations that you give. Um, but that's kind of at its core, you know, why the need for a qualified custodian, you want to have a, a totally separate third-party institution that's holding your actual uh, account and, and your money, uh, your investments, things like that. In terms of like the things that a custodian does, it's, uh, well, make it even more complicated. There's technically three parts of a custodian. Now, a lot of people don't realize this. There's a, uh, a layer that's called the broker-dealer. And this is actually what, is uh, gives you access to certain types of securities. So if someone ever uses a mutual fund, for example, the, the broker dealers actually who's got the relationship with all of these mutual fund companies giving your custodian and therefore your advisor access to a broad menu of different investment choices. Uh, then there's a clearing firm, a clearing firm who actually clears your trades, right? This could be with the NYSE or the NASDAQ. So right, when you go to place an order, the clearing firm is processing that transaction um, and then there's the actual custodian. This is the entity that holds the securities um, and uh, and does that in street name for the actual customer. So, yeah, it's it's a place of the business. I'd say it's kind of the unsexy part of fintech. Um, we don't think a lot about custodians, but they are important. Um, you want to make sure that they, um, you know, have as few conflicts of interest as possible, uh, especially when working with an RIA, right, a registered investment advisor um, like James. Uh, if, if your custodian is also an asset manager, or in, in other words, like they have their own bunch of mutual funds and ETFs and stuff like that, it's possible that they would prefer to distribute their own funds through their custody platform, right? So these things can be a potential conflict. Um, there's also a lot of other arrangements in terms of how um, they distribute other products. There's things called revenue share, which again, kind of, you know, not to get people too deep in the weeds here, but um, where they'll say, hey, even if you don't use our products, we have a select group of other products. If you use those, we get paid extra. Of course, they'll never tell you about these things, right? These are all happening behind the scenes. So when I think about why we built Altruist, we felt like there needed to be a custodian that was built exclusively for registered investment advisors and their clients. Um, and these registered investment advisors have a fiduciary obligation to do what's best for their clients, but their interests before their own. We wanted to, as a custodian, be able to say to those advisors, hey, look, we're removing all of those conflicts that could otherwise make it hard for you to do your best work. 
And, uh, and that's some of the differences between like an altruist and maybe a bigger company you've heard of, probably because they have so many divisions within their business. They work directly with customers. They have asset management. Maybe they have banking, lots of stuff that they do. But actually, in a lot of cases, that can create a whole bunch of conflicts um, and it can make it harder for you as a customer or your advisor um, to help you do your best. Um, and so that's the uh, crash course, the super yeah. entry level 101 on uh, custody, what it is and why it's important. No, that's really good. I actually wrote a, a post blog post recently about the clogged pipes of Wall Street, and that was kind of in response to everything that was going on with Robinhood and and um, some of those things around GameStop and AMC and, and some of that stuff. So I, I kind of tried to provide a, a crash course and kind of the behind the scenes of a trade, like when someone pushes the buy or sell button of a trade, what happens, like what's actually happening. I know, you know, for most customers, they see something sold, they see a, a, a plus of the, of the money from the, the, from the sale, the proceeds. Um, or they see a you know minus if they bought something and, and that's really all they know they don't know who, who's who's dealing with what here so and it is it is fairly complicated you know we've obviously have a huge financial system in this country and, and obviously the world now with everything being so connected so there, there is a lot going on and I think it's important for people to kind of understand who those players are what role they play um, not that they need to very uh, very in depthly but just to kind of have a, a basic understanding of who has your money and, and, and what are they doing with it and how much are they charging you and things like that. So I will tell you, Jason, I was very happy to come across altruist, um, tasks for me that, that I really hate doing are, are, are just those administrative tasks. And of course they're important to onboard new clients, to, to maintain current clients and things like that. But it was unbelievably difficult to do that. I mean, so difficult and it took so much time. And as you know, time away from or doing those things is time away from doing some of the core functions that your clients really care about, whether that's managing portfolios or, you know, reviewing financial plans or, you know, keeping up on what's happening in the world. I mean, that's important um, in this job. So that was the really one of the most frustrating kind of pain points when I was getting going. And, and I was very happy to come across Altruist, a clean UI, simple, easy to use the tasks that I have to do to get clients up and running and to get them invested and, and, and things like that became much simpler. And you guys are, 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 you know, I think on the cutting edge of making life simple for financial advisors like myself. And, and that, that goes right down uh, to the clients as far as the benefits, because I can spend that time being more productive um, with, with them. Thanks. Yeah. I think the, uh, just kind of like um, yeah, embellish ourselves here a bit, but the um, every action that we take, uh, every feature that we build kind of our, our internal, North Star is like, can we make this 10 times better? So like the order of magnitude we're searching for is a 10x improvement over whatever the industry standard is. So whether that's account opening, a lot of people, they have stacks of paper or like kind of cumbersome fillable PDFs with DocuSign. Like we thought, hey, maybe we can make this, you know, a very sort of digitally native, highly automated, very fast, easy process. So if you're becoming a new client, like you have this really great experience where it's really easy to actually get your accounts opened. And similarly with funding, um, you know, getting a transfer in, whether it's cash or, you know, um, a transfer from another firm, like these things, again, in the, in the past could be a bit of a pain, you know, so how can we, again, sort of order of magnitude improve that? Um, the, the reason for doing all this, of course, is like in the end, uh, we really want advisors to be able to do, again, their best work for their clients and actually to be able to serve more people um, effectively. Like one of the challenges with financial advice, I feel, is... 
the best advisors sometimes are really hard um, to get access to. You know, the average person, um, you know, might not have a, you know, really high a dollar amount that is required to get access to certain firms. And a lot of times the reason for those high minimums, um, one, it's just like a marketing thing for some companies, but for a lot of them, it's truly a thing of, look, we only have a certain capacity and we can't serve any more people. And part of those capacity constraints are because of all the administrative, um, you know, kind of burdens of running a business. Uh, on top of that, the costs can be really high, right? If, you, if you're, you know, you talked about this concept of a tech stack. And so if someone was a, a client listening, they might wonder, what the heck is a tech stack, right? But us as advisors, we know that there's multiple things we have to put together. There's, you know, a custodian's one thing, but, you know, of course, there's software to do a lot of other stuff, financial planning and CRM and, you know, um, develop performance reports or fee billing. Like there's a lot of like administrative things. And if you have to stack together four or five or six vendors, it's hard to manage all those vendors. It's expensive, right? And all those things do is take away time to serve clients and increase the cost, right, to a client. Um, that increased cost oftentimes translates into higher minimums because there's a, you know, sort of cost of goods sold for every new client. These are all problems. When I talked about like the benefit of fintech, when it can create, um, you know, sort of better outcomes, but also a higher degree of accessibility, um, that's a good thing. So all the efficiency that we are trying to build, um, it really does have an actual, you know, real um, ethos sort of benefit, you know, where we're really intentional about helping people. Um, and the best way to do that is to help advisors uh, free up a lot of their time so they can better serve clients. So I'm super glad to hear that that's how it's working out for you. Yeah, it, it is so far. I, I really couldn't be happier. Um, let's shift gears a little bit because before Altruist, you've done some other things in the finance space. You're a, you're an entrepreneur and um, you, you've had a lot of success. And I think sometimes when people see you and I've got a lot of entrepreneur clients um, actually. So I think this is a kind of a, a good question. I think you can provide some, uh, some really interesting insight when people see someone like yourself, who's had success, uh, you started having that success at a pretty young age. It's real easy for people to say like, Oh, this guy's plan went perfectly according to what he had envisioned. So he planned on starting altruist, uh, 10 years ago and, and worked his way, um, by going through these steps. But I think in reality, those steps, you know, things you're doing today, actions you're taking today, lead to outcomes that, you know, you can't even possibly kind of envision. So just talk a little bit about your journey as an entrepreneur and how those things you did, maybe when you were 20, 21, 22, getting into the business kind of led you to then start your own RIA and then, you know, eventually led you to altruist and kind of how those things came to fruition. Yeah, cool. I'm always happy to share and, and, and love kind of chopping up with entrepreneurs. So, um, I'll go even a little bit back. So I, I'm from a, a small farming community in West Michigan. Uh, so about as far away from financial services or technology as one could ever imagine. Um, yeah, I think the, uh, population of the county that I grew up in was perhaps under 5,000 people. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of, uh, two high schools in the entire county, you know, cumulative graduating classes of those two high schools was maybe 150. Uh, people. So, uh, my high school had about 70, 70 people in my class. So, wow. Yeah. And so it was, it was a small town. Um, and I think, uh, that's important because a lot of the things I've done the last 20 years, you know, sort of, a, of my professional career, um, just come from, you know, the values that were instilled in me as a young kid, um, you know, growing up in again, a, a pretty blue collar farming community. Um, when I got into the business, I happened to be, you know, I didn't ask for it, but I was very lucky um, that uh, math was one of these things I just enjoyed. I was good at it, um, came easy to me. 
that translated into when computers started becoming a little bit more commonplace. Um, this is in the 1990s. I uh, really dug in. I would, you know, take them apart, rebuild them, put new processors, write my own programs. Um, and I just, it was just, uh, it was different, right? It was different than anything else that was kind of going on where I'm from. Uh, and this led to my first really entrance into finance was as an engineer. I was building productivity software. I was rather young, so I was only 20 years old. Um, and I can tell you that it's definitely not uh, easy. I, I had the um, uh, one of the biggest blessings in my life, although at the time I didn't see it that way. But um, I got my then girlfriend pregnant when we were 19 years old, and I had a kid at 20. Um, so let me just tell you, like, there's uh, there's very few motivators more than like other people's lives, um, right? You know, really kind of hinging on the decisions that you make um, for sure. And so I, I kind of took this, like, you know, all these things that were happening and I thought, okay, I got this opportunity to go work at a major Wall Street firm um, as the, I would have been the youngest employee worldwide out of 50,000. It was pretty strange. And I could either do that um, or I could just kind of continue going to college and I don't know, try to figure this whole situation out. And I took the path of let me go and, uh, and work, you know, see what I can do. Once I got to Wall Street, I actually worked in New York, um, worked in the World Trade Center before uh, they came down. I was there in 2000 and until early 2001. Um, but basically, you know, my observations of the industry were, wow, how unfair is this? You know, like all the people that I knew that were from my sort of hometown and the area I grew up in would never have access to the type of things that we were building in New York City. Like it was just, uh, you know, totally um, not the case. And in fact, it was quite opposite. In fact, I, I noticed a lot of things that were happening where, where, um, you know, some of the, the largest sort of hedge funds and the largest proprietary trading desks of the of big institutions, they were actually using big data to make bigger profits for themselves by analyzing the behavioral patterns of the average small investor. Um, and by their definition, a small investor was someone with less than $20 million, by the way. So that means it was a lot of people. Right? It was the right, 40, right. It's like this almost like the, everyone. Like, yeah. The, the, the top 10th of a percent is picking on the 1% and down, right? I mean, right. Like kind of how this was working. And I just kind of felt like, you know, there's got to be a way um, to try to give broader access to more people um, to the type of vice that can really make a difference. And that was how I got into entrepreneurship. I decided, um, you know, I wasn't going to wait 20, 30 years of working at some big company to try to work my way up a ladder that, you know, was probably not built for me in the first place. I was just going to go uh, do it on my own. So I went back to West Michigan, started my first company. Um, and I've been an entrepreneur ever since. I've started three more companies. Um, and each step along the way, um, I keep realizing, I think if I, if I made this pivot, right, if I, if I tackle this idea, I could help more people. Mm-hmm. And it's really as simple as that. You know, when you're going to name your company altruist, like it, it better not just be marketing. Shit, right. you know, it better be real. Uh, but that's the truth. You know, my last company, our slogan was an investment firm with an obsession for doing good. I mean, that was like what, how we operated. Um, and uh, but, you know, and the company before that was one of the first ever fully kind of remote or digital, like way before COVID, before uh, Zoom existed. We were serving clients nationwide, you know, through the internet back in like 2008 through 2011. Um, and so there's a number of things where I kept thinking, okay, if there's, if you could make this evolutionary step, like for example, that 2008 kind of era, it was, well, people are really limited to just working with people in their community. And what happens if you're from an area like I'm from, where frankly, there are no financial advisors. There's like one local bank and I would not 
give my worst enemy's money to the banker <laughs> that was working at that bank, you know, man, right. money, like there's no way. Right. Um, so I'm like, how do we give access? And I thought, well, what if you could take away geographic boundaries, you know, and we could make it, you know, very remote. Evidently I was about a decade ahead of my time. Yeah, you were. Um, but, but these were kind of the evolutionary steps and, and Altruist was one where at my last company, I was running a, a rather large technology driven, um, sort of, uh, asset management platform built for financial advisors to use for their clients. Um, but it was sitting on top of Charles Schwab, Fidelity, TD Ameritrade, right? Like the big custodians that a lot of people would know, the big brands. And, 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 and by the way, nothing wrong with them, but I noticed that it was hard for me to scale and to serve more people because I had all these technology limitations around things like opening accounts and service, you know, taking care of service requests and doing distributions. Um, and, I noticed that many, many years ago, I was even on the advisory board of a number of companies, some of the custodians, some of the big technology companies. Um, and I kept asking like, why aren't we, why aren't you doing A and B and C? I mean, um, like a great example would be like, why are we still using paper? <laughs> you know, like right. it makes no sense to me. Um, and after years of kind of banging your head against the wall, trying to get someone else to make a change, you as an entrepreneur can always decide to make the change yourself. That's how Altrus was born, right? So, um, but it, it was a long time coming. And I will say that um, it was not always easy. Um, I've got the, uh, you know, gray hairs in my beard to prove uh, a lot of, um, you know, kind of stressful moments. Um, and I think anyone who's a fellow entrepreneur totally gets it. It's also the most intellectually um, and personally rewarding thing I think you could ever do. You know, when you go and start your own venture um, and you, you know, essentially set out to go slay some dragons. Um, and it's a tough, it's a, it's hard to explain if no one's done it, but those who are fellow entrepreneurs, they understand that it's, um, it makes it hard for you to be employable, um, because you just yeah. get addicted to, you know, trying to do something bigger than yourself. Um, it's really rewarding to, um, to be able to hire people and, um, help people build their careers. Um, it's uh, super rewarding to, um, have an idea that actually comes to life and then people, you know, take whatever your service or product is and, and you see it changing the user's lives. I mean, that's just, I mean, these are just things that are, um, you know, kind of the why I keep doing this stuff. Um, uh, but the process definitely was not always easy. Definitely not a straight line, lots of ups and downs. Yeah. And I think that's, that's common with, with any entrepreneur. I mean, nobody, it's just not easy. It's not an easy thing to do to go out, um, and, and, and create something, whether that's a product or a service or whatever, um, without running into speed bumps and, and having issues. And, but that, like you said, that's part of the reward. That's part of what makes it so satisfying when you find success. And I mean, even little victories here and kind of getting off the ground and, and really, I, you know, I've got this vision of how I want to run things, how I want to invest, how I want to do these things. And just like the, a little daily victory here and there, it's like so satisfying because, you know, it's mine and my clients. It's not, um, I'm not doing it because someone made me. I'm not doing it, uh, because, uh, it's in my job description. I'm doing it because I want to. And because I think it's what's right. And that's what I like about you, Jason. Like, honestly, just from following you on social media, reading some of the things you, you've written in your blog in the past, um, talking about a business beyond profits, um, and, and things you can, ways you can impact people. I think that's a really in vogue thing right now. Um, and hopefully it's going to stay that way. Um, and hopefully it's genuine from most people, but I really could get a sense for you that it's authentic, that that's what you kind of see the role of business as is yes, it's a way to make money. Um, uh, but it's also a way to, to reach other people and to, and to do some good. And I think when, when I step back and look at capitalism, that's, that's where it can be really effective is if it's both a, a, a way to, you know, rise people up, you know, financially 
those people who started those businesses, but also it's, it's something that benefits society at large. So it's really cool to see someone like yourself kind of going out and especially into the, the finance space, which isn't always the most, um, I, I guess highly thought of space sometimes, you know, coming out of 08 and 09 and Occupy Wall Street and some of the things you mentioned with, you know, people not having access to see some of these changes in the air and kind of feel, feel the tide turning a little bit. And I think technology is just such a driver for that of, of democratizing things that people have been locked out of to giving people information and ways to communicate and, uh, things like that. I just, I, I think it's really important. And I think it bodes really well for the future of, of this country, for the future of the world and, and for the future of people who maybe felt left out before to be able to get into, to some of the spaces that, that they maybe would, would have had they had the opportunity. So hopefully they'll have that opportunity. So I think what you're doing at Altruist is, is really cool. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, um, uh, interesting. Like uh, for any entrepreneur, by the way, yourself included, um, I was having a, an interesting conversation um, with someone who was uh, in, a, in a significant leadership role, and their career was like this. So this is pretty wild if you go back in time. But they um, early two thousand were one of the first employees, or early employees, first couple hundred employees at Google. So you have to watch Google kind of basically invent, you know. Um, search and everything related to search, which goes so, so deep. And then other, many other products, their entire G suite and, you know, Gmail and all these things, they didn't exist back then. Right. But they were part of kind of this journey um, and built that uh, a, a team into, you know, thousands of people within just their purview um, from there made a leap um, to Facebook when Facebook was very small. Still, this was uh, again, probably 2000, I'd say five, six, uh, seven. So, you know, um, definitely not the company people notice today. I was an early employee there, watched Facebook grow. Um, eventually, Facebook acquired Instagram. And, uh, and and when Instagram was acquired by Facebook, it had 12 employees. Um, people don't realize, like, it was a really small, greedy little team. And then uh, this person I was chatting with, she was then uh, transferred sort of from corporate Facebook to go, hey, go run Instagram, make it a real business, um, and, and built in, you know, Instagram from this huge company. And then eventually went to Snapchat, um, oh which another social uh, company. And in its very early years, pre-IPO, um, and was their COO there. So crazy career. Like I'm looking at it, I was like, yeah. oh, this is like what a what a journey, you know? And I and I asked her, um, I was like, what? You know, throughout all of this, like there's so many, there's so much competition, right? Like, like, you know, there, there's no doubt, like as Google took off, others, you know, were trying to like, it wasn't the, the leader at one point, right? Like it used to be like Yahoo and yeah. I mean, Alta Vista and Geo sites. sites. Um, there's so many urgent cities. Um, there's so many different things that were probably happening. So how did you win? You know, and then it's like, then you went to Facebook and I mean, when you joined, MySpace was still bigger than Facebook. How did you become the leader? And then how did you fend off like Google circles and like every other social, because there's this rush, right? People coming in and then similarly, right? Each stop along the way, there was just like people nipping and she says, you know, um, the, the one thing that you cannot, um, replicate. So if you're, if someone's trying to compete and, uh, and beat you and win, um, they don't have your DNA, right? They might be able to see what you're doing and copy your idea, but they don't have your DNA. And your DNA is essentially the culture, you know, and the, the, you know, the mission, you know, the values of an organization. Um, and she's like, and if you don't have like what it takes sort of in your DNA to succeed, um, it's going to be very, very hard. And a lot of like what made those different stops, you know, um, successful was, uh, that each of them had like, you know, essentially more passion in their DNA to execute than did who knows how many hundreds of companies failed, you know, trying to compete with some of those what are now behemoths, but they weren't, you know, when right. they were small companies. 
still trying to kind of find their footing and build user bases, um, you know, relatively small teams. Um, so I think like with any entrepreneur, you know, certainly with Altruist, we very early on, the very first thing we did is we created a, a culture book before we built any product and really ideated anything. Um, and we said, hey, some of the things we're going to stand for is one, we're going to make financial advice better. We're going to make it more affordable. We're going to make it accessible to everybody. We're going to do that by building the best possible team. Our team is going to have kindness. They're going to have brilliance. They're going to have grit. That's the DNA, right? Like that was the found, you know, sort of founding DNA of our organization. And now it's just really important that we execute on those things, right? Keep building a team of people that have those core cultural characteristics and then make sure that we're, you know, North Star eyeing the prize and delivering on that mission. So I think that it's really important when people think about building something, like find their, their things, right? Like whatever it is that's going to be, again, their mission, like what's the big North Star and then how are they going to do it? And how you're going to do it almost always starts with your people. Like what are going to be the values that you're going to place on the people that you organize and work with? Um, if you get those things right, you can make a lot of other mistakes, um, but I right. think you, you can, you can um, just about you know, tackle anything, um, again, with the right people and the right purpose. No, I, I agree. I think it's really important to kind of step back to, and I, you know, a lot of companies I think go, they do the opposite. They start with the product or the service, and then they try to like go back in time and create the culture, but it's kind of too late at that point. So I think it's really important that you go out from the onset um, with a vision for how you want the culture to be, because uh, that's how you end up with the product you actually want instead of trying to reverse engineer culture. I just don't think you can, you can do that um, uh, as much as you might try. Totally. I imagine if like Pepsi decided to get into the bourbon business and have like Pepsi bourbon. Oh my gosh. It's just not in their wanna, DNA. I don't right? even want to think about that. <laughs> it's not in their DNA. I would, I would hope they never try. Um, who knows? I'm sure somewhere in their portfolio of companies they own, they probably have some distilleries, you know, but, um, but, but it's, it does, it does speak to the point. Like a great example of that is like, um, if you're, um, you know, uh, you don't see like Pepsi and Coke in Whole Foods, right? Like it's like, instead you see these, you know, more bespoke brands that are kind of, you know, curated to a specific audience. And a lot of times they're founded with purpose and they're trying to do something very different. And oftentimes that's the best way to succeed when you're kind of, again, like, going against Goliath, um, right. you know, some huge, huge company, um, is to make sure that you're not trying to be them and, and you can do stuff that they definitely cannot do, which is one of the coolest parts about being an entrepreneur, um, is, is a chance to kind of like invent, you know, again, sort of a category. Well, that's been one of the favorite parts for me is I, and I've said this a couple of times on, on other episodes, but I really have felt this like creative burst recently. Um, just because I have that runway and that ability to go out and write what I want to write about without sending it through five layers of compliance and marketing. I can do this podcast without, I, I don't know if I even could have before. So I don't know if we could have had this conversation and I can really be myself and kind of let my personality, um, kind of come out. And I, I think that's important. Um, authenticity, especially with, you know, basically totally untethered communications, uh, these days, it's, it's more important than ever because, you know, people want to work with a real person. They don't want to work, you know, the computer thing is, is beyond kind of the, the robot part now. So now you can talk to a person. Um, and I think that's really important. That's what people are looking for. So that's been really freeing. So for me to have, you know, be able to think about those things and answer those questions instead of trying to like seek out a firm that, that has the DNA I'm looking for, I can, I can start, I can build the DNA and, and I can grow and I can grow at whatever pace I want. I'm not the guy. Um, I've got other businesses going on as well. I'm not the guy who has to, to hit, you know, you know, 250 million 
AUM in two years to feel like I'm successful. That's just not who I am. It's not even really what my goal is at all. Um, to me, it's about building a family life and a, and a life in general that, that, you know, I love. Um, and, and part of that's working with clients, but it's not working with every single person that'll throw some money my way. Um, and so there, there are just so many things, you know, when you're, when you're building a business, those little decisions you get to make, they all add up. And, and, and that's part of that DNA too. It's not just the vision. It's also those, those small things that you do early on that, that kind of gets ingrained. Um, and, and like I said, you can't undo some of those things, but, um, let's, let's kind of shift gears a little bit. Where do you see, it's been an interesting time there, there, the market's kind of split right now. I feel like so many people feel like we're in a bubble because of what happened kind of post coronavirus. We saw the huge dip there and then, you know, roaring back, um, over the last year, especially a lot of the tech, um, momentum names and things like that, a lot of in, the innovation space and, and things like that. And then you've got a lot of other people saying, no, look, we're about to experience, um, you know, that you've got the fed behind this, you've got, um, high savings rate because people weren't going out and people were getting stimulus from the government. Um, business is about to be booming again, you know, starting here basically now the spring and into the summer and into next year. Um, where do you see it, um, right now? Yeah. So I'm definitely not an economist. As I said, I'm, I'm more of a mathematician. Um, and so, um, in a very micro sense, um, all I can say is like, look, I have my own intuitions. Um, and then on a more macro sense, you know, I have my, my firm sort of, um, you know, empirical beliefs, you know, so in the micro sense, um, I live in California. I mean, I can tell you that we still have an extraordinarily high unemployment rate here. Um, it's not business as usual in California and people should kind of keep in mind that California is the largest economy in the, in the U S by far. It's not even close, you know, when you compare it to Texas, which would be like maybe the second largest or New York. Um, and so, uh, so we still have a little ways to go this year. I think, you know, maybe it's sometime this summer that we start to see, but like, um, Los Angeles County, for example, most populous county in the state, um, you know, you still can't dine indoors. Like there's a lot of things you still can't do. Um, mm -hmm. you know, so we have a little bit of, uh, work to be done. Um, I think with, uh, a broad vaccination rollout, things can maybe change really, really fast, but most people know that, you know, after the first shot, you have to wait two weeks to get to some level of, you know, sort of immunity. And then it takes, you know, 30 days to get your second shot, which then is not. So, you know, we'll have to see, right? Yeah. I think probably by this summer, we'll start seeing that GDP growth really pick up. But in order for that to happen, um, we're going to have to create a lot of jobs. Um, a lot of job creation is going to be necessary. And I guess my fear is that the response so far is just heavy government stimulus, um, which you know, can have some short-term effects, um, but it can create like some long-term, you know, sort of fundamental problems. Um, and also create a lot of dependencies, you know, that, that are not healthy. You know, I, I think, um, uh, yeah, I'm not a, a political person, but I do believe in capitalism. I believe that you have to give, um, you know, businesses a reason to be hiring. Like you, people can't just create jobs if there's nobody buying their goods and services. Um, and, uh, and the government can't pay everybody forever because, of course, we have to pay that back at some point plus interest, um, or through inflation, one or the other, right? So, so, so in the micro sense, again, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm excited for people to be able to travel again and people to go to stores again. I'm, I'm excited, uh, you know, to not have to wear a mask everywhere you go. We still have to, masks are still heavily mandated here in the West Coast. Um, although, again, where I'm from in Michigan, they're starting to become less uh, of an issue. They're opening up a lot more there. Every, every state's a little bit different. Um, so there's a lot of things I think to be optimistic about. Um, I, I think that people should still be, um, at least 
somewhat cautious. And, and the things that, that I would say are, are areas of caution for me. I mean, one is interest rates being so low, it makes it tricky. Um, it's also one of these weird things that helps spur growth in the market. You know, when you have like, um, you know, sort of blue chip stocks paying six and 7% dividends, but you have, you know, 10 year bonds paying less than one and a half percent, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a tough time, you know, for people to think about having like fixed income or cash because it's just a negative effective uh, rate of return. Um, but all those things being said, like, you know, my, my, those are my micro Jason's opinions. I'm not an economist. Yeah, observations, yeah. right? My macro view is that a broadly diversified portfolio, you know, globally invested with the right sort of factor tilts, if you will, um, is a great place to be. And look, there's going to be some ups and downs along the way. But I think that, um, if that's the core, you know, way that someone invests, I think they're going to be in a great position. Um, I, uh, personally love buying individual stocks still. So even though I still have a lot of like, you know, index funds and ETS and I keep it pretty, I, I practice what I preach. I also believe like, you know, buy stuff you like. So I have, you know, probably 40 or 50 stocks of companies and, you know, companies that make products I really enjoy. And I just hold them. I don't yep. really ever sell them. You know, I just have yep. buy stuff I like and I just hang on to it. Um, and I think that, you know, over the long haul, again, um, and, and some people hate hearing that. I realize this. Um, I, I, I did practice as an advisor for a few years. And so I, I remember having this conversation. People have been like, Jason, I'm 68 years old. I don't have a long time horizon. And I'd be like, but it's longer than you probably think. And it's definitely not three months, right? So don't worry about what happens in three months. And don't worry about what happens in six months. And I get it. A one-year setback can be can feel catastrophic, like you'll never, ever recover from it. Um, but that type of short-sighted thinking is actually probably the most dangerous thing that can happen to anybody, regardless of how old or young they are. Um, and certainly if someone's young enough, they should not even be thinking about what happens in the micro short term. They should just be investing, saving, being smart about their budget, watching things like taxes and fees. And, you know, if you can control the things you can control and let markets, uh, longer term efficiency, not just U.S. markets and not just tech stocks and large cap U.S., which is what people kind of be so heavily tilted toward the last decade, but think more broadly. Um, you know, I think people will be rewarded. Um, but it's, uh, uh, it'll be really fascinating to see how the next few years plays out in my view, just because I'm, I do have some concerns about, you know, just large amounts of of, of national debt and unfunded obligations. I think there's potentially some issues with like mass debt forgiveness. I understand the need for it. And I certainly feel for anybody who's in a tough spot financially. Um, but I'm not sure that those are the best solutions that will create the behavior that grows an economy. Um, so we've got to find the balance. So it, it's kind of, kind of where I'm at, but yeah, it's, it's a, um, if that's not about as, um, a cop out of an answer across the board. I said nothing about what's going to happen no. other than the stuff I'm a little bit worried about, but I do believe, look, invest for the long term and all the short term stuff that could maybe happen um, is a lot less of a concern. No, I, I mean, the, I, the thing is though, those are valid concerns for, for sure. I think I see a lot of good. I see some bad. I, I don't know, you know, and, and you don't either. And neither does any other uh, economist or mathematician um, or anybody else, because you, we just don't know what the future holds. I mean, yeah, we could see massive growth that really allows us to to grow our way out of some of these issues, or we might not. Um, we we don't know. But I always kind of say, you know, it's 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 like that quote: "It's a stock is never too high to buy and never too low to sell." Um, so, it, but bottom line for me is, if you're especially if you're younger, you've got time, and you're right. A lot of people's time horizons are a lot longer than they expect. I mean, uh, you know, I have a client who would come in and 
they're in their mid sixties and they're worried about, you know, their, their, their investment strategy and, 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 uh, their time horizon, you might live to a hundred. I mean, that's a long time. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you've got to be careful about, um, pulling the plug on, on investments too soon. I think that's a real risk that's not talked about enough, but, but I think you're right. Short term, there, there are certainly some issues and we'll see over the next nine months to two years how those, uh, come to fruition. But the bottom line is stick with your strategy. Um, unless there's a real reason to change it and a real reason to change it isn't panic. It's not uh, a short term, uh, volatility issue. It's nothing like that. So unless your time horizon, your risk, something fundamentally changes that mm-hmm. requires you to revisit your plan, stick with the plan, because usually when you don't, that's when you make the the dumb decision that you look back on in five years and you say, damn it, I, I would be a lot further ahead if I would have stuck with the strategy that I had. Yeah. Uh, super well said. I, I, um, over the years, I've been people tried to get me to build financial planning software, you know, multiple times, and and I would be, and they'd be like, "Well, I don't like this software. I don't like this software. Someone could just build this, you know, whatever super app, right? It's here's all the things I wish." And I'd be like, "Look, here's the thing with planning software: the planning software is a lot less important than people's ability to stick to the plan, you know. So the perfect financial plan is one that, yes, it mathematically works, but it's also one you feel comfortable enough with that you'll stick with it." It doesn't matter the software you use necessarily to, you know, build that plan if you don't stick with it. And I, I think that's where a lot of people do fail is it's, um, you know, yeah, you can put all this work into forecasting and planning and then trying to better understand uh, what our goals are um, only to have someone um, have essentially like an emotional breakdown um, yeah. over, uh, you know, uh, coronavirus or, you know, unemployment or whatever it might be. Look, all things that, as you pointed out, valid concerns. Um but not nearly as important as sticking to a plan. Yeah. And guess what? There, there are always valid concerns. I don't care how good everything's going. Totally, you, yeah. you, you will, you can't find me a date in the United States where you couldn't find a major newspaper somewhere talking about how something bad is about to happen. Yeah. So listen, yeah. I could tell you a thousand reasons why I should have never started any businesses in my life. Right. Like I think we exactly. all know all the reasons we shouldn't do something. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think the, uh, the, the fact is like the, the, the reasons why we should do it are far more important than the reasons we shouldn't, you know, and, and, and much so with investment. I think you're totally spot on. Um, it'd be a great exercise if someone ever built like an OCR application that literally scanned, you know, like every single major, whatever top 100, like media publication to kind of create like their sentiment analysis. Maybe Google already does this. I don't know. That, uh, that would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think there's probably some uh, interesting contrarian indicators, probably more that we'd learn yep. than um, affirmation indicators. Someone sent me a video yesterday. It was, it was hilarious. It was, um, I think it was from 1999 and it was a wealth manager on, I don't know if it was CNBC or, or one of the business talk show or, uh, networks. And they were talking about Amazon. And the question was like, here, you know, this company's not making any money. There's no way they should be valued 20% more than Sears. Sears has been around for all, and I was, I was just laughing because I'm like, you know, these same conversations, they happen every, all the time, every day, there's some business out there that's growing, that is either not profitable or not very profitable, but that has a vision and is disrupting something. Um, and there's someone out there saying, this is ridiculous that people are willing to pay this much for that. They should be buying X, which is someone who's not innovating. They're not, they're not improving their business. They're just kind of clinging to, to their old style and hoping they can ride it out as long as possible or that people will kind of ignore this, this better solution that's out there because they're maybe more familiar with the product. So I thought that was hilarious though, just watching it. And, uh, I'm sure that the, the, whoever that was cringes 
Oh, when totally. someone sends him that, if I were his friend, I'd send it to him every morning. I think. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me, I think it was the, there was a video of Steve Ballmer being like, why do, why should I care about an iPhone? Who's ever going to use an iPhone? You know, it's like, this is ridiculous. Right. right? And it's like, oh, well, maybe, maybe you know, in the end, Ballmer worked out okay for him, you know, yeah, maybe that's he's true. Done all right. But, um, but yeah, it's, it is kind of ironic. All of the, the, uh, all the reasons why something shouldn't work, um, sometimes said by very smart, accomplished people, uh, and then you're wrong. Yeah. So. Oh, and we're all wrong sometimes, but <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, I know we're getting short on time here and I know you're a, you're a busy guy. So, um, I like to ask a couple kind of ending questions just to get a couple thoughts. And one of them I really enjoy asking because it kind of gives some insight into what's really important to people. Because when you talk about money all day, um, and investing and things, it can kind of give the false sense that, that that's what I care about or that's what I'm telling my clients is the most important thing. But wealth certainly goes beyond dollars and cents. Um, so to you, what does the word mean? Think of wealth and being wealthy. What, what does that mean to you, Jason? Wow, that's pretty good. I, I guess I, 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 uh, haven't thought about a lot, but my, my instincts would tell me, um, you know, time is probably one of the most important things. Um, I think you mentioned earlier that, you know, one of the, the reasons you're building your business the way you're building it is to kind of create some, you know, freedom to live a, um, a quality lifestyle that's, that's meaningful. And I think that, um, there's no amount of money, uh, that can then substitute for that. Um, where, where I'm from in West Michigan, there was a, a very, very wealthy, um, finance, uh, person's named Bob Van Campen. And, uh, you know, some people might know that Van Campen Funds was a company that he started. They sold it, I think, to, um, I think to Morgan Stanley. He also started a company called First Trust Portfolios, which some, a lot of people yeah. know. Yeah, I know. Sure. Um, and then he actually owned Xerox, which people don't always know. Um, and when he, uh, died, he died in his early sixties and his net worth was around $10 billion. And this was 20 plus years ago. So he's probably one of the, I don't know, 15, 20 wealthiest people in the world. And he had heart failure. Um, and there was nothing they could do. They couldn't do a heart transplant. Um, um, he, they, there was, there was no real way to save his life. And he realized this, like he accepted sort of his mortality. Um, and, and it's a pretty crazy thing to think about. Like one of the wealthiest people in the world can see it coming. Like they know their life's going to end and, and they've got more money than you could spend in a thousand lifetimes. And I'm sure he would have traded all of it for like two more years, yeah. right? You know, one more year, right? Like there, like there's no substitute for time. So I feel like one of the most important things, you know, at a personal level people should be doing is valuing their time, you know, and the people that they're able to spend with, the connections that they're able to make. I think that's really, really important. And I think the other thing that, you know, hopefully matters to a lot of people, certainly does to me, but it's kind of the legacy. Um, there's a book I read years ago um, and it was called Life's Golden Ticket. And, uh, and it was about this, uh, young, young man, his name's Brendan Bouchard, and he, um, was on a mission trip. I think he was in Dominican Republic. And, you know, he and a friend were driving after doing mission work all day. They hit a, hit a corner. It wasn't well marked. It was totally dark, no street lights. And they had no idea it was like a hairpin turn. And, you know, they were going too fast. They went off this cliff. And he said, like, his whole life flashed before his eyes. He's a young man, cars tumbling over this cliff, should have killed him. Mm-hmm. And he's, and he, and he had three questions for whatever reason that were popping in his mind. He says, did I live? Did I love? Did I matter? You know, his kind of three things. And I remember like, you know, when I read that book, I was in my twenties and I kind of thought about that. It shaped a lot of like, you know, kind of how I think about entrepreneurship. Um, but is that it's not about money, right? It's like, you know, again, did you live? You know, did you love and were you loved and, and did you matter? When you look back, you know, some years later, I don't think anyone's going to care about the companies that we build, but you know, it's more, you know, there's going to be something a lot more important than that. Um, 
So I don't know how, how helpful that is, but those no, that was great. I want to. That was. I want to. Very... I want to mean something when I'm when I'm on my deathbed um, and, and be be proud of like the things I did and, and hopefully um, be glad on how I spent my time. You know. Uh, no, that's great. Very well said and uh, really cool references. Um, I think that that's all important. And, and so far, you know, kind of time and freedom, which are, are I would say very closely linked, have been the two kind of most um, prominent answers. So, so definitely sticking with that theme. And then one more for you. If you could go back, you got into the business, you know, um, at a really young age. If you could go back today, kind of going through what you've been through and seeing what you've seen and be, being in the business and building your own businesses, what, what advice would you give to yourself kind of about wealth building or money? Yeah. So I think one of the, the early lessons, um, is, uh, I think you have to, um, you have to believe in yourself because a lot of other people are not, um, we talked about, you know, all the reasons we shouldn't do something. And I remember when I started my first company, um, I actually had a mentor, you know, that, um, that I, I, I kind of posed, you know, Hey, I'm thinking of doing this thing. Here's what I'm thinking of doing. I was given a lecture on, on how bad of an idea it was and how much it was going to fail. And I think I've probably heard, you know, negative talk um, a lot, you know, over the last 20 years that I've been doing this. So I think one of the most important things is like, look, you have to believe in yourself. There's also a, a thing that, I, that I've learned to be incredibly important. Um, you know, I wish I could, I wish I knew where to attribute this to because I, I certainly didn't create it. But um, it's that you become the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Yeah, I love and that. So pick your circles like really wisely. Um, and a lot of times that's going to influence, you know, um, how you, um, if, 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 you know, if your goal is to be successful, you have to define what success looks like to you and then find people who embody that. And, uh, you know, for me, it was never money success necessarily, but I like to be around good people. I already told you about the three character traits, you know, that we right. build our team at Altruist around. Um, the first one is kindness. Like I just have no place in my life for negative, um, people that put other people down that aren't empathetic to others that are greedy. Um, like this is part of being a Midwesterner, you know, they call us Midwest nice, but kindness is like the very first thing. It's like, it's just a must have, it's a non-negotiable. Um, and so, you know, I have other things too, but that's just like one of these core things. And, and ironically, um, if you build that circle, um, I think you have a pretty high probability of becoming a lot like, you know, those that you spend your time with. So choose them well. In, in that end, you have to be willing to let some people go. Um, you know, meaning like, yeah. If someone's just constantly dragging you down, they're constantly like a burden. Um, you can't save everybody. Um, you know, at some point you have to go, look, if I'm going to be the best person myself, I have to be around people that can help me become that, um, not people who are trying to tear me down. So, um, you know, those are the things that, uh, lessons learned. I, I can tell you, I've had a lot of bad business partners over the years. I've been around a lot of people that in hindsight, look, I'm glad they helped shape me for who I am and appreciate the things I, I appreciate today. Um, so definitely no regrets, but, um, but boy, uh, would life have been more fun if I just would have known Ben to build a great circle, you know, um, yeah. and then stay close to him. Yeah, I agree. And I'm, I'm kind of the type when I'm around people, I want to make their day better. I don't ever like the thought of someone leaving an interaction with me and being like, damn, like I feel worse, you know, having had that conversation that is, I hate that feeling. I don't ever want to be, be that way. I want to, you know, people to laugh, people to smile, people to have a good time when they're around me and being around others that, um, not that everyone has to be that way, but that are dragging people down. It's, it, it is, um, very much a, a, um, 
perpetuating thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, once one person uh, acts that way, you can kind of see it start to affect an entire group of people. And I never want to have that effect on anyone. And I want to be around people who aren't going to have that effect on me because, you know, it just spreads like wildfire. So I don't, I don't want to be in a world where everyone's miserable and pissed off at each other and treating yeah. each other poorly and, and out to get one another instead of, you know, hopefully building each other up, supporting each other and, and, and being kind, like you said. So very good stuff, Jason. I really, really, really appreciate you uh, coming on and, and having a chat. And and next time we will do so with bourbon. <laughs> Proper bourbon. Yeah, absolutely. Now, this was a, a ton of fun and thanks so much for having me. All right. Well, take care. I appreciate you, sir. Thanks so much for listening to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. It was a real pleasure to chat with Jason Wink, founder of Altruism. You can learn more about me at vermilionprivatewealth.com and don't be afraid to reach out by emailing me at james at vermilionprivatewealth.com. I want this show to get better and better. So if there's someone you want to hear from or something you want to hear about, please let me know and I'll do my best to make it happen. We've got a great lineup of incredible guests coming up and I'm excited to share more conversations on wealth, investing, innovation, life, and delicious bourbon. So make sure you hit that subscribe or follow button. And until next time, cheers. Cheers.